thank you for downloading our podcast and listening to our Good Friday and Easter sermons. In this series, we consider Christ's death and resurrection from the perspective of a centurion and Christ's disciples. The disciples walked with Christ, saw miracles, but they still failed to perceive Christ in light of a new day. This is contrasted with a centurion, a man who professionally administers death, stands in darkness at Christ's crucifixion, but still perceives Christ's ministry. We are left with a question. Who do we perceive Christ to be? Is he a Christ of our own making? Or do we see him as a suffering to triumphant Savior who is conforming us to his image? The Gospel writers certainly have a way of presenting the irony of Christ's ministry. On the one hand, those who are the descendants of uh, Abraham and should know Abraham and have the prophets, those who in the beginning of the gospel rested in the reality they have Abraham and their prophets, John rebukes them and reminds them that Christ is one who can raise up stones if he so desires to be children of Abraham. And so they miss the significance of Christ. They're the ones who should understand and they do not perceive. We would think that one who is a hardened military commander, a centurion, a man who's been around the block, so to speak, seen a lot of death, administered a lot of death, has been experienced in administering death. I mean, that's basically his job. It's one that, that you would expect to have no compassion, no soft spot for this criminal who's a rebel and stirs up trouble and uh, creates a revolt, that he would actually celebrate the reality that another criminal, another rebellion is put down. And this is where I thought it would be interesting to sort of look at the death of Christ through the eyes of this centurion. And think about who this man is, who Christ is, and to really ask the question of what does a centurion see? How can a centurion, on the one hand, praise the innocence of Christ, miscarriage of justice, because he's died a horrible death and only the worst of the worst would die, and yet he praises God for that? How can such a man do this? So I want to just ask uh, these questions of what is noted, what does a centurion see, uh, what has happened, and lastly, what is a perception? And so let's begin with what is noted. As I mentioned, the man that we're calling to our attention is a centurion, uh, one who uh, would oversee the, a crucifixion, or at least that's one of their jobs, or at least this particular man. The centurion would be charged with overseeing basically 80 to 100 soldiers, um, Commentators, historians speculated be a number anywhere in there. And there would be individuals that would be very seasoned. Uh, normally they did not come from the aristocrats or, or the ruling class. Uh, they would have been a, a soldier that started on the bottom, uh, was very efficient in war and killing, and would be one that, that would come to the top and, and would almost be treated as an aristocrat or of the elite of society. And they would have literally worked their way up uh, through the ranks. So this is a, a man who is seasoned in death. Now there's some that say, well, maybe this is the same centurion in Luke 7. 
I would say most likely not. Uh, the centurion in Luke 7 knows who Christ is, calls for Christ, uh, desires for uh, Christ to heal his servant. Uh, and then uh, when the servant takes a, a turn for the worse, the uh, centurion says, I don't need to come, just, just say a command and, and, and it will take place. So the centurion in Luke 7 knows who Christ is. There's no indication that the centurion here knows who Christ is. So it seems this is a different centurion. Uh, this man, as he would oversee uh, the crucifixion of Christ, we, we don't know exactly when Christ would have been turned over to him, but he certainly would be someone who would not uh, be happy uh, to know that there's an individual who has been charged with stirring up a rebellion. And so when the soldiers uh, continue to taunt Christ, and to smack Christ and say, prophesy, prophesy. Uh, it's something that grates us, uh, kind of in an offensive way. I mean, this is our Lord and Savior. When you look at it from the soldier's point of view, this is a man who on the one hand claims to be a prophet, has insight, and also claims to be someone who can lead a rebellion. And so, as a soldier, you're going to look at him and say, yeah, you're a prophet, wouldn't you know to duck? I mean, you're going to know who's going to hit you and when they're going to hit you, so duck, dodge it. You know, that's basically what they're saying. What, what kind of prophet are you? Oh, you're one who leads a rebellion? Look at you. You're, you're not one who can stand up to us. And so it's basically the soldiers showing their superiority in who they are. It's possible that the centurion's part of this, maybe uh, part of leading Christ from place to place. We, we don't know. Luke's not specific. Uh, we don't know officially when Christ is in his custody. We find that this centurion states at the death of Christ, certainly this man was innocent. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Stephen King's book, uh, The Green Mile, but when you think about uh, Paul Edgecombe, uh, when there's one who's a messianic-type figure, who he knows is innocent, Paul resigns. He, he can't do his job. It's, he recognizes that, that there's a fundamental problem in our justice system. But this centurion reacts radically different, doesn't he? The centurion turns on this and says he prays God. And so it's, it's something that, that when you read through this again, it, it almost becomes offensive. How, how can you praise God when, when you're a high-ranking official you're someone who can actually make a difference in the empire. You're someone who can actually do something. And you see this gross, disgusting miscarriage of justice, and you praise God. Not only does he witness the miscarriage of justice, but being a centurion, he's in charge of administering the whole crucifixion. It is his job to make sure that the moment the prisoner is taken into custody to the moment of the crucifixion, that it is carried out. So he's not just a passive bystander. He is someone who has participated in the miscarriage of justice. He knows this man is innocent. And somehow he praises God. It was something that really struck me in thinking, how, how could this man praise God when he's miscarrying justice, and sleep at night. So we go on, and I ask the question, well, then, then what has happened? What has he witnessed? Well, as I mentioned, we think about this timeline. We know 
Uh, Jesus is one who's been arrested. Peter has already denied Christ three times. Uh, Peter does this because he knows that if Christ is arrested, there's a high probability uh, the disciples will be arrested and crucified as well. He doesn't know that for sure, but there's probably a high probability. You can understand uh, that Peter's a little stressed, doesn't make it right. But again, we, we see that contrast. A disciple who should know better, strong in the flesh, I'll never deny you, I'll fight for you, Lord, is the same one who turns on his Lord and denies him three times. We find that as Jesus has been mocked, uh, we talked about how the, the soldiers would have punched him and, and told him to prophesy if he's a prophet. If he's so smart, do you think he'd know when to duck? Well, their point is, he's not a prophet. He's not significant. And we might say, well, what's Christ's option in this? And that's, that's another question that popped in my mind. You know, is this just Christ doesn't have an option? This is the Son of God. This is God incarnate. Christ could command his angels to show these soldiers who he really is. You know, if they want to fight, Christ could give them a fight. And it wouldn't last very long. It would last exactly as long as Christ wanted it to last. And so you can hear the voice of Satan in this, can't you? Oh, you're a prophet. You're the incarnate word of God. Oh, look at who you are. You're, you're the tough guy who's going to overthrow Rome with your kingdom. Oh, look at you now, right? And so you can hear the taunting of Satan behind these soldiers. So again, you, you think of Christ enduring this, knowing full well with a mere command these soldiers can be put in their place, and yet Christ continues to endure it. Now, I don't know if this is something that would have been impressed upon the centurion, but certainly by the time the centurion takes Christ into his custody, when, when we know for certain that would have taken place for him to escort him to the crucifixion, you know, you think of Isaiah 53, he had no former majesty, uh, he didn't look like a man, he was so beaten, he was beyond recognition. He would have sort of resembled a human being, and, and at most that's what he would have looked like. And so you, you imagine that picture that even as a centurion, you think you would look at a guy and say, man, we just need to put this guy out of his misery, poor guy, you know? And that's a, the, the way that the centurion sees him. But one of the things, when we think about uh, Christ being passed between the governor and Herod and being mocked, that you have Pilate pronouncing three times that this man is innocent. Herod himself announcing this man is innocent. As Pilate uh, basically deduces that, says, well, if Herod sent him back, Herod thinks he's innocent, so uh, nothing's been wrong here. So this may have been communicated to the centurion, knowing, hey, there's, this man is one who is innocent, is enduring, is enduring uh, this, this pain, this, this harshness. And that when you think about the centurion receiving Christ, why does he receive Christ? Pilate says, Basically, I don't see this man as guilty. We'll beat him to a further pulp. I mean, you already think of Christ standing there after the soldiers have had their, their rounds with him, already beaten up pretty bad. Pilate turns and says, listen, I'll send him over. We'll beat him up some more. We'll release him and, and, and we'll call it a day. But, but he hasn't done anything worthy of crucifixion. 
Because again, you know, crucifixion's not something Rome necessarily wants to do. Uh, it's, it's cruel. It's terrible. Uh, people have said there's no official records of those who have been crucified because it's, it's embarrassing. You, you don't want to be known for it, but yet it is something that you want it so that when people rebel against Rome, they look at the individual on the cross and they say taxes aren't so bad. I can live with the Roman governor. He's not a bad guy. It's better than being on that cross. And that's the purpose of the crucifixion. So you, you don't want to devalue this either. And so for, for Pilate to say to the Jews, listen, I find no guilt in this man, verse 4. He's not guilty of any of the charges, verse 14. Verse 22, not done anything worthy of death. So Pilate affirms this. But yet we have the people of Israel throwing such a tantrum that they still hand him over to the centurion. Three times Peter denies Christ. Three times we have a Gentile affirm Christ's innocence. We have this ironic thing that no doubt the centurion would have known of this. You know, the people act like they are so principled. Oh, this man speaks against Caesar, and we can't have someone that speaks against Caesar, not, not associated with us. We don't want that. That's contrary to who we are, right? Pilate investigates the man. Herod investigates the man. Herod's looking forward to seeing Christ. He thinks, well, maybe I'll see a cool magic show tonight. That's all Christ is to him, just sort of a, a sideshow, a freak, uh, going to do something interesting for him. But, but no real thought that at the very least, this is a human being that is uh, experiencing the miscarriage and the horror of this justice system that's not functioning like it should. Nevertheless, Herod doesn't care. People throw a tantrum, and, and they want Barabbas released. So they, they charge Christ. There's some subtleties here in Luke's gospel. They charge Christ with making himself the son of God. Oh, we can't have someone claim he's the son of God. You know what Barabbas' name means? Son of God. That's literally what his name means. And then they say, oh, well, we don't want someone stirring up trouble. Why was Barabbas in prison? Luke tells us. He's in prison for insurrection. The very thing Israel said, we have to turn this man over to you for insurrection. Barabbas is charged with it. He's done it. He's guilty. But it's not only insurrection, but also murder. This man's a murderer. And the people of Israel say, well, we'd rather have this man released, whose name means son of God, who's a rebel rouser, who's going to probably stir up another revolution against Caesar. He's not going to be peaceful. And we want to send this peaceful individual to the cross because he makes himself out to be God and he's not a Messiah that fits in our system. We don't like him. He doesn't measure up to the Messiah we want. Barabbas, that's the Messiah we want. The rebel rouser, the one who makes war, that's the one we want. Nevertheless, we have this uh, transition of what goes on with Christ. So we have, he released the man that had been thrown into prison. So this releasing is, is a word that, that means essentially he's acquitted. There, there's no longer any charges that can be brought against him. Uh, and then we have the one that, that they asked for is delivered over to Israel. So Pilate is not making a pronouncement. He's simply taking Christ giving him to the Jews. 
And so it's important that, that Pilate's not the one who's sentencing him to death. Pilate is saying, I basically just don't want a riot, and I'd rather miscarry justice and, and have peace and have this one individual die, and then you guys can do with him what you want. And we find what happens. They led him away. And so for sure, at this point, the centurion would have been involved. He was most likely involved prior to this in the sense of knowing that he's going to have to escort someone. And so he's kind of already probably seeing the hypocrisy. A convicted insurrectionist, you want him, but you want the guy that's been rather peaceful? Okay. Seems that there's a little bit of a contradiction here, but whatever, we, we go on. So the centurion, following his orders from his uh, superiors, they go, they lead Christ away. So now Christ, obviously, he's beaten pretty badly. And so as Christ is beaten pretty badly, he's most likely too weak to carry his own cross, so they seize Simon. And as they seize Simon of uh, Cyrene, uh, they, they take him and, and they force him to carry Christ's cross. Uh, Paul himself in Romans uh, greets the family of Simon, which implies uh, maybe he wasn't a disciple of Christ at this time, but he certainly became a disciple of Christ, as uh, the implication that we find in Scripture. Whatever the case, he carries his cross. And we notice that as Christ is going out, the centurion would have witnessed this as well. Now, if you think about this man who's seasoned in war, he's been told this individual is an insurrectionist, right? So at the very least, if, if he's a competent commander, which, which he most likely is, and he's experienced with the conflict, then expect that as a crowd gathers behind Christ and Christ turns to address the crowd, that you would expect the centurion and the soldiers to, to take an offensive stance. You know, they're, they're going to put down anything that might come up. So when Christ turns to address the crowd, you would expect Christ, if he's an insurrectionist, you're outside the city, you're getting out into sort of a, a questionable space that, that you can defend, and, and it's a little more threatening, you'd kind of, as a centurion, say, man, stand your ground, let's be alert, let's see what's going on here. But Christ turns and he doesn't say, take up arms, now's the time. And you have a bunch of people coming out from all sorts of different places trying to break Christ free. See, if he's an insurrectionist, that would be a great strategy right here to basically get himself free. Nothing like that happens. No matter how strong of a stance the centurion and, and the soldiers have taken, there's no implication that Christ was even going to start giving that command. In other words, that maybe the soldiers were so intimidating that Christ's uh, rebellion was put down because they realized they couldn't win. No. We hear what Christ says. He basically tells the people of the city to weep. He's saying this is a tragic day, but you're setting in motion the, the end of time. And if this is what Jerusalem, the city that has killed his prophets, is doing to the Son of God, what a tragic day. So the centurion, you can imagine, would probably be looking at the other soldiers and, and be confused. This guy is an insurrectionist. He's got an opportunity to, to try to rebel against us. We're in sort of the most vulnerable position we've been in in this trip. And this is the speech that he gives. 
So I can understand where the centurion in his mind is saying something's not right here. This is not what I would expect an insurrectionist to do. I would expect some sort of a scuffle, some sort of an interaction at this point, but this is pretty harmless. So they go on, and he goes and he nails these two criminals to either side. Now, this is hilarious. I mean, it really is if you're looking at this from a Gentile perspective. Christ is on the cross. Obviously, he's going to die, right? I mean, that's as, as a centurion, be like, once those nails are in, once this person's strung up, it's over, it's done. This person's going to die a slow death, and I just got to wait here until it's done. As he's dying, you have one criminal turn to him and say, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. I mean, isn't that strange? It seems to me his kingdom's kind of fallen flat, don't you think? He's dying on the cross. But yet the criminal perceives something understand something about this mission. What is more, as a centurion is here, we have a strange darkness that transpires from the six hours, roughly about noon, not very likely for this to take place, all the way until um, the ninth hour. And so it's basically from noon to three when that's going on here. Not a time when you expect darkness. Now, there's some that talk about an eclipse, and if you remember the eclipse we had here a couple years ago, it kind of got eerie. Uh, It kind of did have an eerie feel to it with the animals getting quiet. It just seems strange. But if we just reduce it down to an eclipse, we're, we're missing the significance. Because the language in Luke's gospel is a language that recalls the darkness of the day of the Lord, darkness of Genesis 15, Uh, where Abraham stares between the animals and he stares into hell, and he's terrifying. And so this this darkness is not just an eclipse. The centurion would would be here perceiving something else is going on, knowing that that something's different. And so then how does the centurion come to his perception? What does he fundamentally see? Well, as we go on, and we think about this event of the cross, we can see in a subtle way the centurion already starting to change his mind. Or at least that's the implication of it. Because as centurions here, Christ hang upon, hung upon the cross, we have the soldiers who go and cast lots for his clothing. Now this again is something subtle in Luke's gospel. A centurion has first dibs on all plunder. So if he crucifies someone, anything he likes of the person that's crucified, he has first dibs. So if he wants it, he takes it. But the implication of the soldiers casting lots, these expensive garments, a centurion would have desired this. The implication is that the centurions, no, I don't want to plunder him. Something's different about this is the implication. So he's letting the soldiers do what they want to do, and the centurion's kind of just pulling back. You think about that witness. I mean, this this has to resonate in his mind. Why is it that a criminal, the one criminal we understand railing at Christ, save yourself and save us. I mean, doesn't this tell us a bit of a view of how we view redemption? I want immediate relief. I want immediate relief. Um, deliverance from my current circumstances, right? That's what the soldier's asking for. He, he doesn't want 
uh, to enter into heaven. That, that's not his concern. The implication is he, he just wants to go back to stealing and thieving and, and doing what he did that ended him on the cross. And unfortunately, he's not going to be able to do that anymore. And so save us. Come on, you're the Messiah. Do this. This is where the other criminal in his profession, remember me when you come in your kingdom. In other words, that criminal is seeing something beyond this age. He's perceiving that something about this cross is not just supernatural, it's, it's divine. There's a divine mission going on here. By the grace of God, he perceives that this crucifixion is not an accident and not a miscarriage of justice. It's the intention and will of God. But there's something else about this with the centurion. That if he's a centurion who oversees crucifixions, it's implied this probably isn't his first rodeo. He's probably watched other uh, crucified individuals die. And this is probably his, his job now. And so when, when he witnesses Christ dying, we, we have record. He's been beaten. He's so weak that he can't carry his own cross, which means Christ is, has been worked over pretty well, to put it delicately. And as he's in this state, and the centurion is right there witnessing this, we have Jesus saying in a loud voice, right? It's not a quiet voice. He doesn't whimper. He doesn't whisper. It's a loud voice. In other words, it's with conviction. And as he has this conviction in verse 46, he screams out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Then he dies. The reason I call this to your attention is that Christ has said, well, John's gospel recounts it many times, no one takes my life from me. I lay down my life. So right here, it is Christ and his authority giving up his life. Not as a weak one, not as a, a whimpering child, but one who is conscious as to what his ministry means. And this has to have some sort of an effect in a centurion. He's thinking, this is a guy who couldn't carry his cross. This guy has been beaten to a pulp. This guy has been up all night, and yet he has the energy to say this. Oh no, something divine, something supernatural is going on here. And so now when the centurion sees what has taken place, as he observes this, in other words, he's, he's understanding the events that have transpired. It's not just he sees it with his eyes or he's just a witness. He understands is the force of this. And so when he says, certainly this man was innocent, that's an offensive statement in a sense. <laughs> You're a centurion and you celebrate a man's innocence and that he dies a horrible death like this and has been treated in this way. That's where Luke tells us it's not just that statement where, where we make a deduction from it. It's that he says he praised God. You see, that's the important qualification here and why the centurion doesn't resign immediately. Because the centurion understands the mission of Christ like the thief on the cross that he understands that this is a divine mission and why I wanted to read from the fourth servant song. It's not accidental Christ was beaten up. It's not accidental that he went to the cross. It's not accidental that he died. He had to die to take away our sins, to be that perfect sacrifice. So now when we think about what Luke is doing, 
He professes the significance of Christ through unlikely outsiders in how Luke does this. The centurion making this declaration, affirming who Christ is, a man that we wouldn't expect to be tender or merciful or, or, or a man that, that we would expect to be soft. I mean, this man has made a, a very competent career of killing many people to get to this position. And yet, by the grace of God, his heart is broken, and he understands who this God is, who this Christ is. He professes it, praising God. And by a broken heart, I mean that the Lord has penetrated it, pierced through it, so that this man properly perceives the Messiah. Luke 7, the centurion I called to our attention at the beginning of, of the sermon. He tells Christ, oh, you don't need to come. You're busy. You got things to do. Just say a command. I say a command. People come. People go. I understand what it means to have authority. You're God. You say a command. My servant will be healed. And what does Christ say? I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. In other words, the unlikely centurion, once again, Luke 7, understands the mission and perception of Christ. We think of Acts 10, the second volume in Luke's gospel. Peter's torn. Can you have a meal with a Gentile? What does he do? So he has that vision in Acts 10. And, and where does he go? To a centurion's house to receive the gospel. So we think about these ironic pronouncements and professions of faith, understanding who Christ is, not asking for immediate deliverance, fully professing, I deserve to be on this cross. This is what I deserve. Remember me in your kingdom. In other words, there is redemption. Not all is lost, even though I am facing the most horrendous and horrific death of, that one can face in the Roman Empire. There is redemption. There is life. There is an assurance of knowing that because of Christ's work, he can enter into the Lord's kingdom. Pilate, three times countering Peter's three denials, affirming Christ is innocent. The centurion carrying out this crucifixion, affirming Christ is innocent. We have these clear testimonies and, and declarations. And in the midst of the tragedy of Good Friday, we can be assured that this was not an accidental thing. God intended Christ to be handed over to death, and it went exactly as it was intended, and Christ is the one who gave up his spirit, willingly, authoritatively, as our Redeemer. And so then, what does a centurion perceive where we began? He perceives truly a man who's been wrathfully accused. He truly sees that Christ is innocent. What's going on, how this transpires, how this works out, and the movement from Pilate to the crucifixion, we, we don't know. We speculated, we, we thought about some of the implications along the way. But at the end, he truly perceived that Christ is not only innocent, but this is the will of God, he's praising God, because the redemptive purpose of God, the promises of the prophets, have come to confirmation that as Christ has died and has given up his spirit, as a perfect lamb of God led to slaughter, as Christ willingly endured the abuse and the death 
that was laid out for him. We find here the assurance that this is not accidental. Let us then marvel and praise God with the centurion, seeing the goodness of the glorious power of our Savior. Let us not minimize the redemptive blessings we have in Christ. Let us truly perceive with the centurion that when Christ gives up his spirit and says it is finished, his redemptive work truly is finished. His one-time sacrifice is enough. His resurrection confirms his innocence in the heavenly courtroom. Amen. Thank you for subscribing and listening to our podcast. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.